Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Anna Brady, a third-year law student at the University of Oregon. Brady's interests are writing, environmental literature and leadership, and arts-based advocacy. She earned a master's degree in the environmental humanities at the University of Utah in 2015 under the tutelage of Terry Tempest Williams. In addition to her law studies, Brady serves as a policy and communication strategi strategist for Utah Diné Bekeya, a nonprofit organization. Brady will be a panelist at the Environmental Justice, Race, and Public Land Symposium held at U of O May 9th through 11th, 2018. Thanks, Anna, for coming on the show. My pleasure. So you have this master's degree in, in the environmental humanities from the University of Utah. What is, how do you define the environmental humanities? Sure. Um, well, it's, I think, an emerging, emerging interdisciplinary field that really um, investigates and explores the intersections between <clears throat> our species and the kinds of humanities and art forms that we engage with um, as that relates to our relationship to the natural world. Um, so recognizing that, <coughs> excuse me, anytime we write or paint or study um, um, humanity or the natural world, we're, we're necessarily engaging that relationship between, that sustains all of us, um, that, that our art forms, our literatures, our, uh, our ways of knowing are necessarily predicated on the beyond human. And environmental humanities as a discipline um, or as a field, a, a space where disciplines can join and, and converse, to my mind, is an area where we can bring the sciences into dialogue with the arts, where we can bring different ways of knowing um, into, into conversation with one another in order to more fully understand what what our relationship is at this critical historical moment that we inhabit. And I think that though the term environmental humanities has been more recently coined as a discipline, um, I think it's something that's been engaged for a long, long time, going back um, in many different types of wisdom, traditions, and arts and literatures as, as in a way, the, the very nugget of our, of our study about who we are as as a species on Earth. Um, and I think art has a unique way of helping inform that study. Uh, it's very complementary to, to science. It, it deepens and expands and allows us space to acknowledge that all that we are and all that the, the, the greater world is cannot be summed up purely by objective observation, but has to be felt and interpreted um, and, and Humanities really help help serve that that deeper deeper understanding. So, wh what's your path to that degree? Why did you decide you wanted to get a master's degree in environmental humanities? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for a long, long time, I've been very curious about the the nature, if you will, of the relationship between. Um, our species and and everything that encompasses us. Um, if you call it nature, if we call it the natural world, the beyond human, and um, that had been kind of a driving inquiry for me um, in my undergraduate studies as well, which I did at the University of Montana in English and environmental studies. So this query has been has been one that's been with me for a long time. Um, and, and explored that both through writing of my own and through the study of literatures, 
both um, domestic, international, of, of many uh, different disciplines and ethnicities, and certainly Native American literature was, I found, profoundly informative of that, particularly because much of the, of, of the, the canon, if you will, of nature and environmental literature is, has been predominated by a lot of white male voices. And that has offered some valuable insights, um, but it certainly doesn't encapsulate all the different ways of perceiving and, and receiving and interplay that goes along with that. So when it came time, when it felt like it came time for me to pursue um, higher education and further degree, I was really, really drawn um, to the program at Utah in particular because of the opportunity to work with, with Terry, um, with Terry Tempest Williams, who's been a hero of mine since I first encountered her work as a teenager. And, um, you know, we only have so many chances in life to work with our <laughs> heroes. And when, when the door opened for, for me to do that and then um, to be able to teach writing at the same time at the University of Utah in a you know, kind of a reciprocal way that wouldn't break the bank um, for me to do higher ed. It felt like, how could I say no? <laughs> okay, so now you're at the University of Oregon and you're pursuing a, a, a law degree. Right. Um, what inspired you to take that path? Yeah, excellent question. Um, what inspires a person to undertake law school? Um, I still ask myself that sometimes um, every day. Uh, no, I think, I think it, it had been something that was percolating for me for, for a while. Um, I think the one limitation I found um, in writing or in studying literatures, um, which I love, I think there's the, the piece of me that will always be, you know, the poet, the writer that sees the world in metaphor in that way. Um, but I, I really wanted to feel like I could take that and elevate it um, into the, the language of, of, of power in a lot of ways and be able to participate in those kinds of conversations, to be able to um, bring the narratives that people, uh, that people share when they want to advocate for the places that they love and bring those all the way to the top and not feel that, you know, that ceiling over, over one's head of, well, I can take you so far, but beyond here, you know, we have, to, we have to put you in the hands of the law, but to be able to carry that all the way through. Um, and, and, you know, law really, in a lot of ways, at this point in time, in our history and in our culture, I think is, is, a, is the, the language of power. And I, I craved that literacy. Um, there have been interesting insights along the way about what, um, what that truly entails. But um, I think, you know, for many of us who feel compelled by by the arts and humanities who, are, who feel an affinity with the natural world and understand the kinds of challenges that we face at this moment, you know, the, the world of the law can be not necessarily a, our natural habitat, if you will. Um, it's a place of a lot of, uh, a lot of structure and rules and formality and, and posturing. And, um, and yet I felt maybe that I could kind of tuck inside that Trojan horse and figure out the way its gears worked um, and start, start working on the nuts and bolts mm -hmm. that way. So what, what kind of law are you gonna specialize in, do you know? Yeah, so my focus to this point has been, um, and what I hope to do moving forward is at the intersection of natural resource law and, and federal Indian law. Mm -hmm. um, 
and ideally beyond simply the scope of federal Indian law, which is which is how we conceptualize of um, of the legal framework in in uh, involving uh, sovereign tribal nations within this country, but also working with indigenous groups more broadly. Um, so certainly the environmental piece has been something that's been um, with me for a long time. And the deeper I dove into that, the more I kept finding that anytime we talk about natural resources or the environment, um, we ought to be engaging um, with those communities, those individuals, those wisdom traditions that have inhabited this continent since time immemorial. Um, we do, the law does recognize um, tribes as sovereigns within the United States, which is a very unique um, legal status to occupy. Uh, and from that point, tribes have potentially, and I think increasingly are exercising a, a tremendous amount of, amount of power, as well as moral authority. And I think that the two combined, the legal apparatus um, and status that's accorded to tribes along with that depth of relationship um, that, that indigenous communities, native peoples have with their ancestral territories, which is something I've learned more and more about through my work, um, that's, there's tremendous potency there. And um, it's not potency that's to be um, used or co-opted or, you know, it's, it's always helping, in, in my mind, the work is to help support and elevate the tribal voices into the visions of, of the future for their own peoples and the lands and resources that they care most deeply about, help elevate that into, um, into the, the more dominant conversation. The, and, and, and along the way, I think, there's the opportunity to really help shift the, the paradigm um, if, if, if we see it that way. So my, my hope is to continue working um, with tribes and, and particularly helping sort of translate between the environmental organization and the sovereign tribal nations because those, uh, those avenues of communication have, have, have evolved and transitioned mm -hmm. over time. So let's talk a little bit about the work that you do with tribes. Mm -hmm. So first tell us about the, the work of Utah Diné Bakea. What, what, is, what does that group do? Who, who are they and what do they do? Absolutely, so Utah Diné Bakea, or UDB, um, as I might uh, fall into referring to it, is a Native American-led uh, nonprofit organization uh, led with a, a board of directors, all grassroots Native American elders, um, based in Utah. Um, in Salt Lake and then down in the in the very southeast corner of, of Utah. Um, and the organization was started in 2010 um, by a, a core group of uh, board members who still operate today, um, most of whom are, well, all of whom are um, Navajo and Ute Mountain Ute traditional tribal elders um, and community leaders and came together um, to respond to some challenging social justice and environmental protection issues that these individuals and their communities were um, really concerned about. Um, very briefly, in 2009, um, the, the FBI um, conducted the largest sting operation of uh, looted archeological objects in American history, and that was down in rural Southeast Utah in what is now recognized as the Bears Ears Cultural Landscape and the Bears Ears National Monument. And um, 
this event, this realizing that um, non-native neighbors had been pillaging um, sacred sites that are very, very deeply considered the, the resting places, but also the dwelling places of the ancestors, um, that struck a profound chord um, with native communities in that area. Incidentally, um, that, that area of the world, that area of Utah has also um, had dealt with some some interesting social justice challenges in terms of voting rights and um, public education uh, support and reform. So there have been any number of efforts through the years, always grassroots up to um, to bring a greater degree of equity to that area. Some people refer to it as the deep south of the west. Mm. And so Utah Dene Bakea um, was formed in order to, to respond um, to, to that circumstance and not, um, not only respond to uh, what, sometimes that can be construed negatively, it wasn't a reaction, it was, it was a, a really depthful response out of the concept of, of healing. And that's always been really at the core of the work that UDB does. The mission um, talks about the idea of healing people and the earth. Um, and so Utah Dene Bakea grew and developed and became very involved in the public lands planning effort that was happening um, in that in that area, initially under Senator Bob Bennett, and then when um, Bennett was was replaced um, under, excuse me, under Representative Bob Bennett and, and then Representative Bishop. Um, political processes to try and sort out not just what was happening with public lands in San Juan County, which occupies the, the southeast corner of Utah, but all seven counties along the eastern eastern edge. And um, so the the individuals, folks like Willie Gray Eyes and Mark Maryboy and um, Jonah, Joni Yellowman, these are folks who still operate on the board. Um, really kept just steadily one foot in front of the other, educating, um, helping to, to bring the information to the Native communities, which that information wasn't always being relayed and often wasn't being relayed in the languages of, of those communities, um, especially that those elders still speak um, and may only be Navajo um, speakers in many areas. So participation participating in the public processes. And um, over time, that um, seeing that, that the processes that were being facilitated by Republican elected state leaders weren't necessarily um, according the kind of enfranchisement that, that Native community leaders hoped for and really were, were going to demand, they began to um, create their own initiative and their own effort within that process and that grew into the Bears Ears National Monument Initiative campaign um, which was uh, really gestated by Utah Dene Bakea and then um, lifted and shared and ultimately taken up by the five sovereign tribal nations of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition which um, we'll probably talk more about. So. Utah Dene Bakea continues to do a tremendous amount of work and has grown by leaps and bounds, um, even in the time since I've been involved um, as a staff person. I started in June of 2015, so I've been in that role concurrent to law school, which has been a ride. Um, but And so U UDB um, continues to support the tribes um, in their uh, sovereign efforts to, to defend Bears Ears National Monument and that cultural landscape, and also 
always, always working with the grassroots communities to um, continue to build capacity, build power, build um, voice for uh, for those individuals and for those those communities that haven't always been listened to to the degree that they should by the county, the state, and the federal government. So tell me about that tribal coalition. What are the tribes that are part of that coalition? Yeah, so there's five tribes in the coalition. Um, the Navajo Nation, uh, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, the Zuni, Pueblo of Zuni, um, Northern Ute, or the Uinta Ure Ute, and um, the Hopi Tribe. And what's remarkable about that is that um, uh, tribes are by no means monolithic. Sometimes when uh, folks look from the outside, we talk about Native Americans or Indians or Indian country, and um, that that's a thing. Um, but but tribes each, of course, have their own unique cultural traditions, beliefs. Um, you know, even even the the patterns, the way prayers are said, is is different from tribe to tribe, um, of course, and. Several of the tribes within that coalition have had historical um, friction or animosity, but this vision of bears of protecting the Bears Ears cultural landscape, which is sacred and tremendously significant to all of those five tribes um, for various and, and different reasons, um, that vision of protecting that and of tribes collaboratively managing the first sacred public lands area in United States history was a unifying vision that really brought tribes together from, from that region in a remarkable and historic way. Um, I mean, to see Navajo Nation and Hopi working side by side as co-chairs of this coalition, um, it would be like OSU and mm. UO, you know, sitting side by side planning their game plays um, and, or, you know, <laughs> some something equivalently significant. and 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 of tremendous, uh, tremendous import. So the tribes have been um, hugely effective in their initiative. Uh, for something of this, of this scale, it moved remarkably quickly and, um, and really resonated with, at the, at the federal level in, in DC. So the tribes are continuing to work together. The coalition is still very much um, an entity. And I think that it's been, um, a powerful force for the tribes to see what what gets done um, when we work together in in that way. And again, always around that idea of healing. Mm -hmm. Centrally, it's not about mine, it's not about yours or, or who it belongs to um, precisely, but that we can come together and that this place that's been recognized as a sacred place for millennia, this can be a place where we can help to promote healing um, of, of all people and all beings. So give us a, a status update on, you know, the, the impacts of the, that, that their work, mm -hmm. the high points, the complications, yes. tell us what's been going on. Sure, so um, it's, a, it's a full story, but the, the kind of long and short of it is that after a remarkable initiative campaign effort through 2015 and 2016 on December 28th, 2016, President Barack Obama um, formally designated Bears Ears National Monument, um, really the the first truly Native American national monument in in history, um, which is 
uh, notable because the Antiquities Act, the law that uh, Obama invoked and utilized in order to protect that area, was initially passed in uh, 1906 in order, as, as the name implies, to protect um, antiquities, Native American sites. Um, and, and yet, never before in its 110-year history had it been invoked by tribes themselves to protect an area considered sacred from, from the tribal perspective. It had always been kind of that, um, uh, yeah, coming, coming from the federal government and dictating this is an important area or this is an important area. So it was, it was a remarkable achievement for, for Indian country, um, broadly speaking. Um, and of course, December 28th, 2016 came after the 2016 election, presidential election. So there was already an awareness of the, the kind of um, antipathy that might be out there and indeed was. Um, there had been resistance by pr primarily the Utah delegation, the, uh, the Senate and congressional delegation uh, in to the idea of further federal land holding, um, federal control of public lands. Um, now it's important to understand that the Bears Ears National Monument as, as designated that boundary, every, every inch, every acre of land within that, hun um, excuse me, 1.35 million acre area, which is significant, um, was federal land to begin with. A, a national monument can't be carved out of of private land, it can't be carved out of state land. Um, but once the designation um, took place, there uh, it wasn't too too many months down the road when um, the Trump administration started having some some rumblings. Um, a lot of that driven by powerful members of uh, of of Congress, um, particularly the senior most senator um, Orrin Hatch, who happens to be from Utah, and. So um, once uh, Ryan Zinke was uh, appointed as Secretary of the Interior, which uh, that position oversees both the Bureau of Indian Affairs as well as the BLM um, and the National Park Service. So it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting bridge role. Uh, he was quickly, well, in April of 2017, was directed to undertake a review of all national monuments that had been over um, a certain acreage amount that had been designated in the last 21 years. And that number seems a little arbitrary until you realize that 1996 was the year that Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument um, was designated by President Clinton, um, another large landscape scale national monument in southern Utah. Um, so all of which is to say that for the last year, um, the the efforts of the coalition have pivoted from more proactive vision toward healing, toward collaborative management, toward um, really healing over that relationship between tribes and the federal government, which is a long and storied and complicated history, um, to once again on the defensive and kind of fending off the federal government in a lot of ways, which shows the power that a change of administration can have. So this unprecedented review process took place, review. Um, Ryan Zinke visited a number of national monuments, but um, the directive from the very get-go was to start with Bears Ears. Um, it was the craw 
in in their in their throat and um, or excuse me the, the in in their craw and um, and so zooming ahead um, on December fourth, twenty seventeen, President Trump um, went to Salt Lake City and despite uh, protests by thousands of people in the streets. Um, purported to reduce uh, and to some degree undo Bears Ears National Monument, which um, is fairly unprecedented as well. It's been reduced by more than 85 percent, uh, you know, purportedly, um, and the courts will decide at this point whether that is uh, legal action for a president to take. Um, and there are multiple lawsuits, I understand. There are multiple lawsuits, yeah, and there are, it's sort of a a triangle, a trifecta of lawsuits with the tribes, um, once again, always, always leading, tribes, tribal voices front and center. Um, it has always been uh, the MO. And so the tribes um, are suing the Trump administration and the uh, appropriate appointed officials. And then um, Utah Dene Bakea, the organization that I've worked with, um, is also plaintiff in a, um, in, a, in another lawsuit, um, and then a along with a number of local, more regional organizations, um, including Archaeology Southwest, Friends of Cedar Mesa, um, and a number of others. And then the, the third lawsuit, all of these have been um, consolidated in federal D.C. court. Um, the, the third are a number of, of conservation organizations, including the Wilderness Society and the Sierra Club. Um, and organizations that have a stake in seeing, uh, in seeing the lands and resources protected. And so that's in process. Um, the law uh, moves slowly, mm -hmm. um, which has both uh, good and bad aspects to it. Um, the, the Trump administration has moved to, uh, to relocate the, the lawsuit to the District of Utah, um, which they probably think would behoove them, that they might have a friendlier friendlier audience there. Um, but for now, that motion hasn't been granted. So it's going to be, it's going to be a long, a long plod. Um, but scholars um, and the tribes, uh, but, but truly the, the vast, um, the vast majority of legal scholarship, because this is a very, a very public kind of issue, a very newsy legal issue, um, has analyzed that under the 1906 Antiquities Act, um, most likely a, a president doesn't have the authority to undo a national monument, that under the, um, the property clause of the Constitution, this was a delegated authority that mm -hmm. Congress granted to the presidents, um, and it expressly lays out the authority for a president to designate, and there is no language indicating that a president may undo. And actually, um, succeeding laws, um, laws that have been passed since, such as the Federal Lands Policy and Management Act, which governs BLM lands, um, which was in 1976 passed, um, included express language reserving to Congress the authority to modify or undo a national monument designation. So um, there's a lot of speculation that this suit, because of its prominence, will proceed to the Supreme Court with relative rapidity. Um, we'll move along fairly quickly. Um, it's a question of, of, of executive authority, and, um, and it's, never, 
it's never been fully resolved. There have been here and there attorney general opinions, various things of that nature since the 1930s. Um, again, with the, the majority of that weight landing on the side that no, in fact, a president can protect an area but may not unprotect an area. But um, time will tell. And in the meantime, tribes are, are holding very strong to their position and proceeding with management planning, which was what they should be investing energy in now anyway, figuring out what is the best way to manage a cultural landscape. What does it look like for tribes to um, to sit shoulder to shoulder with the federal agencies and, and to uh, include their particular forms of traditional knowledge into the management and administration of public lands that belong to all Americans. So um, we're like very close to the end of final Last question, try to answer briefly. Um, how do you think you're going to practice law after you get your degree? Is that what you think you're going to do? Uh, that'll be interesting, Paul. Um, I think I'd love to practice for, for a while. Um, I'd love to have that be part of my quiver. Um, I've definitely seen through my work, and it's been so interesting to have law school side by side with the Bears years work, um, that there's a lot of ways of making change. Um, and not all of them involve lawsuits. And not even all of them involve the passage of, of laws per se. Um, but they all, I think the, the common thread is really recognizing and being able to articulate a compelling vision, um, whether that's in a legal argument or in a story, in a song, in a prayer. And um, so I think, you know, there'll always be the part of me that's a writer and an activist. Um, and I hope that, that the legal part will continue to, to help inform and offer insight to that. But I certainly wouldn't want to, um, to, to put on the blinders. And especially at this moment that we exist in, I think it's, it's particularly important to be able to, to see and read and speak across, across the lines. Okay, on that note, I wanna thank you so much, Anna, for taking the time to speak, to speak with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. I've been speaking with Anna Brady, a third year law student at the U of O. She serves as a policy and communications strategist for Utah Diné Bekea. Brady will be a panelist at the Environmental Justice, Race, and Public Land Symposium held at the University of Oregon May 9th through 11th, 2018. Thanks so much for watching.